Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Friday, December 22nd, day 77 to the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our new political correspondent Sam Sokol on his first Daily Briefing appearance and health reporter Renee Gert Zand. Hello to both of you. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Rene is here with a look at the country's rehabilitation facilities for the many wounded in the war and a fascinating window into the horrific task that a small committee of physicians have of declaring a hostage dead without the ability to examine a body. Sam accompanied an American evangelical pre-Christmas solidarity mission to the devastation in the Gaza envelope this week. He'll speak about their reactions and give us a glimpse of what took place at the Knesset this week. All this and more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet. But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Yesterday, the IDF announced that it had demolished a major Hamas tunnel network hidden under Gaza City's Palestine Square. We have reported that all hostage negotiations between Israel and Hamas are at a stalemate over a precondition to cease fighting first. As of this morning, 139 soldiers have fallen in the IDF's ground offensive in Gaza, but thousands more have been wounded. Renee, you reported that Israel is not prepared to handle these numbers in the long or even the short term. So what can you tell us about it? So I can give you the uh, latest numbers that I could uh, pull together. As of today, the health ministry is reporting that uh, since the beginning of the war, since October 7th, we've had 11,658 Israelis injured, that's uh, soldiers and civilians. The IDF is reporting 471 injured altogether since October 7th. However, when I've uh, spoken to the uh, IDF Disabled Veterans Association, uh, they said that the numbers are actually higher. They go on Ministry of Defense numbers, and there have actually been, according to them, uh, over 6,200 injured uh, and of them, over 2,000 have already been recognized as permanently disabled. They explained that, that the discrepancy is due to the fact that the IDF really only reports on very 
serious uh, injuries. You know, we sometimes hear about a soldier who's moderately injured. Moderately injured could be an amputation. So, uh, so when the larger numbers reflect any type of injury, it could be uh, some type of uh, minor bullet wound that was able, you know, the soldier could be stitched up and sent back to the front. So, but altogether, we're talking about thousands of injured Israelis, either civilian or uh, military. And before the war, there were only 1,225 rehabilitation beds, beds in, uh, you know, spaces in rehabilitation hospitals or re- or rehabilitation wards in regular hospitals. And obviously, you know, it's not hard to do the math that we don't have the capacity, the space. So there has been um, effort to expand the, uh, the rehabilitation capabilities within the country as quickly as possible. Some hospitals like Ichilov, turn their rehabilitation department into an entire rehabilitation hospital. Uh, Balinson, which did not have any rehabilitation capabilities, is now partnering with uh, Beit Levenstein, uh, which is one of the larger rehabilitation hospitals, uh, and to, in order to, to uh, offer rehabilitation. I personally went to visit uh, Hadassah uh, here in Jerusalem, which uh, has been for some time building a new, very advanced uh, rehabilitation building, but the construction had been held up due to funding. And I happened to be there when the Knesset uh, Health Committee was visiting and the leadership of the hospital was basically pleading for the funding to come through from the government so they could quickly finish at least two floors of the hospital, of the rehabilitation hospital, and get things going there by the end of this year or in January. I also went to Sheba, where uh, many of the soldiers end up for rehabilitation, and uh, they quickly uh, converted a floor. Uh, They had already moved the geriatric patients uh, into a more protected area because they couldn't move quickly. When the siren goes off, they can't move quickly to shelter. So they had cleared out a floor, and they quickly uh, turn that floor into something suitable for young soldiers and young adults hurt in the war who had to go through rehabilitation. I visited, uh, they didn't they didn't spare any detail. I mean, they converted it in three days, unbelievably, but they really made it welcoming for these young um, people. Everyone is doing their best, but it's going to be a long-term effort to try to meet the needs of, the, as you said, the long, the short-term and the long-term rehabilitations. Sam, you attended a Knesset committee meeting this week that touched on this topic. Do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh During a meeting of the uh, Labor and Welfare Committee this week, a representative of uh, the Defense Ministry's uh, Rehabilitation Division told lawmakers that since the outbreak of the war, her department had dealt with 2,816 new patients, and 18% of them were suffering from mental health issues and uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And according to the, uh, the ministry representative, 
Israel lacks the capacity to treat all of those who have been injured and traumatized in the uh, in the war in Gaza. And she said that if they don't get additional resources and standards, they won't be able to uh, take care of everyone. Moreover, they said that they still haven't succeeded in establishing a separate department for treating PTSD. Now, this is really a concern because we're seeing combat at a level that we have not in years, involving many more soldiers than we have in years. And the head of the uh, IDF Disabled Veterans Organization, I don't know where he got the number, but uh, he said that we expect about 10,000 PTSD sufferers coming out of this war. And when you consider, you know, how many people have been mobilized uh, on top of the regular army, we've had 350,000 reservists. Now, obviously, not all of them are in Gaza. Uh, many of them are in the north and in the West Bank. But when you think about how many people are currently uh, deployed in some capacity or mobilized, obviously you're going to get a very uh, large number of people uh, who end up with uh, with mental health issues and other health issues. And it looks like unless we increase that capacity as a country, people are going to start falling through the cracks. Okay, Sam, thanks for that. Let's stay with you. You accompanied a mission of U.S. evangelical leaders to the South this week. It was put together by Joel Rosenberg, who's a Jerusalem-based Israeli Christian interfaith activist, and Likud M.K. Dani Danone, who is a former Israeli ambassador to the U.N. It included former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee and Ken Blackwell, who is a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Commission on Human Rights, who worked for, coincidentally or not Jerusalem Mayor Teddy Kolek in the 1970s. Now, before we actually dive in with your impressions, I just want to play a really astounding snippet from your conversation with Ken Blackwell. What's your impression? Devastating. And it is not too often that you can see up close the evil that still exists in, in this world. And, but it, it, it lets us know that we have to be forever vigilant and prepared to fight back. Wow. Talk about a Hollywood moment. What were the participants' impressions as far as you could see? We could hear that there was, you know, firing happening, that you were in, in fact, a danger zone. Well, yes. Uh, as we were walking uh, between the buildings, uh, that had been destroyed. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of the color of what it was like. Uh, you know, these these buildings, we were walking on rubble. Uh, house after house were was blackened by, by fire, uh, pockmarked with bullet holes and shrapnel holes. Uh, there was just devastation everywhere. And in front of each of the homes, uh, there was a sign with a picture of the resident who had either been killed or taken hostage during this brutal attack. And as we were walking through, these evangelicals were just absolutely shocked. Uh, Rosenberg turned to me at one point and said it was like walking through the set of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee just said it was a gut punch. This was... Uh, something, even 75 days after the attack, the bodies are gone, the blood has been cleaned up. But 
the sense of absolute devastation remained and there was a sense of shock. People were holding back tears and every time the artillery would go off, there there was firing from near us, uh, outgoing, not incoming. But every time the artillery would go off, people would shudder and shake just from the sound of it. And as we got to the edge of uh, the Kfar Azaki Butz, closer to the Gaza Strip, you could begin hearing uh, machine gun bursts uh, from fighting in the Gaza Strip. So it was a very intense, uh, intense moment for them. And the consensus among the evangelicals really seemed to be that they need to, t- to take this experience back and pass it on, especially to some of the younger evangelicals who have been, uh, according to polling in recent years, less supportive of Israel than uh, older evangelicals who are among some of the most pro-Israel groups in the United States at the moment. Sam, thanks for that. We'll go to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. The Israel Defense Forces have confirmed the deaths of 21 hostages, with the bodies of only eight of them having been brought back to Israel. So the task of determining the death of these hostages held in Gaza has fallen to an independent committee of three leading Israeli medical professionals. We just found out about this committee two weeks ago. Renee, your interview with Sharqa Tzedek Medical Center's Director General, Professor Ofer Meren, who is one of the members of the committee, is just eye-opening, jaw-dropping. So first of all, what were his motivations for joining this really unprecedented venture? Yes, indeed, this is is really unprecedented. There are no models uh, from around the world and in for nothing for this committee to really follow. They had to figure out how to do this on their own. Um, When I had this really special sit down with uh, Professor Marin, he emphasized why he he took on this very difficult job. He said it was because he knows how important it is for families to have closure. They've been suffering for the last you know, two and a half, three months already not knowing what the fate of their loved one is. And um, he felt that 
if he can give uh, a positive answer one way or the other uh, to a family, then at least they would have some closure and uh, be able to to in some way move on. It's just to live in that kind of limbo is just not not uh, acceptable to him. So he took on this very difficult task with two of his his colleagues. Tell us what you can about how the deaths are actually determined. There is no body, as we've said. Obviously, there's testimony, but people are fallible. So how are they making these determinations? Well, it's a little bit of a mystery because as I spoke to Professor Marine, he was limited by what he could say in terms of not violating uh, national security. Uh, as hard as I tried to get information out of him, there was only so much I, I could get. Um, so just to make it clear, there there is no, these doctors are not seeing the bodies, they are not touching and examining the bodies, there is no DNA evidence, there is no tissue, uh, human tissue to examine. So they are making these determinations of death, you know, sitting in Jerusalem, sitting in Tel Aviv, uh, you know, regarding someone in, in Gaza far away. Um, so they have been, these three top doctors have been meeting uh, for since the second week of the war. We, of course, did not know about this. This was secret into, to, until two weeks ago. They've been sitting uh, two, three times a week for hours on end, going over material uh, intelligence that the, uh, in, that the intelligence community, that's the, I, you know, IDF, we, we, I, I can't really say, but different uh, branches of the intelligence community bring them information and they uh, review it, uh, painstakingly review it. Um, and rather than telling me how they make the determination, Professor Marine uh, told me how they do not make the determination of death. So for one thing, they will not go on only one source. Uh, they have to have two or more sources of information uh, to help them confirm, to come to their conclusion. Um, they will not rely on any information disseminated by Hamas. Uh, they will, however, use material that was uh that was recorded here in Israel on October 7th, like, for instance, video cameras from the kibbutzim um, and uh, GoPro uh, footage that uh, the terrorists left behind or that uh, captured terrorists had on them. Uh, so that's sort of a rule. They will not use still photographs absolutely no still photographs because uh, those can be doctored in some way. They will not go on information uh, regarding injuries that hostages had as they were being dragged from uh, away from Israel into Gaza. So even though we might have evidence that someone had been shot or their arm blown off or, or whatever, they are not going to speculate whether that person died from their injury, got uh, or maybe got some treatment and, and somehow survived. They're not going on that. And finally, they are not going on hearsay. 
And uh, that includes, interestingly, testimony from returned, released uh, hostages. There was one instance where a hostage said that she had been treated or held in some type of medical facility, and there was another Israeli hostage next to her, and he was alive, but then the next day he was dead. They won't go on that. Uh, they won't go on that eyewitness testimony from the returned hostage. So um, that still leaves it quite mysterious. Um, but we do know that somehow they are able to make uh, these very difficult calls. They also are able to determine the cause of death. Uh, they feel that is important for the family to know if if the family wants to know. They So they, they put that in the report. The report has to go uh, from them to back to the IDF, it has to be approved by the IDF's chief rabbinate. If we're talking, that's in the case of a soldier. If we're talking about a civilian hostage, then it has to be approved by the IDF's uh, rabbinate and the and Israel's chief rabbinate. And then the family is notified, and then it's up to the family whether they want to notify the uh, the press, the media, um, and. That's basically what's happening. Again, as I said, it's it's not totally clear how they do it, but they are experts, and uh, they're they're doing this, and they're trying to provide closure to the families. Renee, thank you for that. Just to end with, I want to follow up on a story that I discussed with our military reporter, Emmanuel Fabian, yesterday. A soldier from the battalion that mistakenly killed three Israeli hostages last week in Gaza visited the mother of Yotam Haim, one of these fallen hostages, after she posted that she and her family love them and do not blame them for his death. I'll just read out what she said in her post. I am Yotam's mother. I wanted to tell you that I love you very much, and I hug you here from afar. I know that everything that happened is absolutely not your fault, and nobody's fault except that of Hamas. May their name be wiped out and their memory erased from the earth. The soldier told Yotam's mother, Iris, we received your message, and since then we are functioning again. Before that, we were shut down. And she responded, amazing, that's what I wanted. Just really, really amazing sense of fortitude here. Sam, Renee, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another episode tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any comments or questions about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.